Docking. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures to all of you listening, hopefully around the world. This is the F11 Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Deal, along with your other host. Mr. Brandon Gorey. It's great. It's great to be here. Happy to happy to co-host. Let's uh, let's get into it. <clears throat> Today's sponsor is Dehancer. Check out your code in the link in the description below to get ten percent off your copy of Dehancer. And if you're not familiar with what Dehancer is, there's a film emulation software plugin. Uh, you can do it for both motion picture and stills. If you do the motion pictures, you get the Hanser Pro. If you want to do stills, you get the Hanser Film. You can emulate things like Kodak Portrait 400. You can get uh, expired Ektachrome. You can push and pull your film. You can do all sorts of cool things, grain sizes, halation, bloom. You can even uh, change the paper type for your print because it's not just about your negatives. It's also about your print. So check out the link in the description below. I believe Gory is the code to get 10% off that. 100%. 100%. But today's episode, we're going to be talking about snake oil and scams in the photography world. Um, we're going to have a very in-depth conversation on different scams. Uh, Brennan, you ever been scammed before? Yeah, in photography, yeah, for sure. Definitely with uh, quote-unquote photography enhancing equipment and the like. Yes, we're going to talk about uh, equipment that's a scam or snake oil, but we're also going to talk about business-related things that can be scams, uh, just things you need to look out for, uh, keeping your head on your shoulders. And we're going to start off today with an old scam that seems to be picking up steam because it seems an entire generation of young photographers are not familiar with this one, and that is the check scam. So what the check scam is, and it, the check scam can also translate to digital things like Zelle and PayPal and all that, but what the check scam is, is somebody uh, hits you up and they uh, overpay. So like, hey, I want to book you for a shoot. And you're like, great. And like, what's your rate? And you say, oh, my rate is whatever, $500 or whatever, $1,000, whatever you charge. And they're like, cool. And then they char they uh, pay you, they sell you like $1,500 or $2,000 or whatever. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I overpaid you. Can you please uh, refund me the difference? Because it's just too much trouble to go through all of this again. So you 
uh, are legit and they are not legit. So the money they just paid you isn't legit money and it's eventually going to bounce. But you have legit money in your account. And so you go, oh, well, of course you overpaid. I'm going to give you $1,000 back because I charged you 1000 and you gave me 2000 So here's $1,000 back. And uh, then they steal your money and run away into the night. And congratulations, you just got scammed. Ooh, you know, I hate to cut you off, but I actually won one of these scams. And that's how I got my first ever camera. So... Well, the camera that I use is my first Nikon. All right. So I just got, we're going to go on a little tangent here. We're going to go on a little story. So I get a, I, I got a Nikon or not. I got a Sony a 5,000 for my birthday, you know, little dinky little camera, digital mirrorless, you know, almost, almost useless, just a fun dick around camera. So I go to sell that on Facebook marketplace because I'm like, okay, I think it's time to get like an actual DSLR and I'm, I'm gunning for a Nikon D 5,600 crop sensor. Now, the guy who gets in touch with me on Facebook Marketplace is a scammer, and he tries to do the overpay scam. And I'm oblivious of this at the time. So we do this by Venmo, and he sends me $1,400, literally $1,400. And I say, you're overpaying by $600. And he goes, and we're, we're communicating by email for some reason, because I told him to I told him to do this through email because I didn't trust Facebook marketplace. And that's just where I was. So he keeps addressing me as Chris, even though my name's Brandon. And I'm like, okay, like this is, this is now looking like a scam after he emailed me. And so he sends me the $1,400. He's waiting for me to accept it. I haven't accepted it at this time because when Venmo first came out, you had to accept the payment. It didn't just land in your account. You had to accept it. And so there was that bridge that I had to overcome. Now, what I what I did instead is I kept emailing him and I let him on. All the while, I sent Venmo an email. Now, back at the time, Venmo's team was like less than 30 people. It was a new company. It had just come out. It was like 2018. So I, I tell Venmo, I said, hey, this guy, this user, I sent, them the, I sent Venmo the username. This guy's scamming me. Like, can you do something about this? And so what Venmo does is they get back to me the next day and they say, we have frozen his account. Now, I stop replying to this scammer's emails. He's probably some dude in Pakistan just working bank accounts. Since his account is frozen, he cannot retract any payment. Then I go accept his money. It deposits into my Venmo. I send it to my bank and I pull out all of the money in cash just, just because I don't want anything to be reversed. Now, I take that $1,400 in cash that same day to Best Buy, and I grab myself a Nikon D5600, and then I sell my Sony A5000 to some lovely chick down the road. They've gotten a little more wise to that. You, that doesn't happen anymore. No, that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> now, now you do that, and you're fucked. So that is an anomaly, but that's pretty awesome. Uh, and yeah, that guy can fuck right off. But, uh, but yes, what you need to be careful of with the scam, and Brandon alluded to it, usually the grammar is terrible because they're not from the United States, okay? So that's one thing. They're copying and pasting the message. It sounds a little impersonal, but the one thing that really stands out to me is, and I've talked about this in the past, when somebody reaches out to me and wants to work with me, I always ask them, hey, why don't you go through my portfolio and find work of mine that I've done 
and you look at it and you go, I want to be shot in that style or whatever. And that kind of, you know, it gives me a cheat sheet of what lens I was using or what backdrop I was using or whatever. I do that with everybody. Well, the thing with these scammers is they don't say shit about your portfolio. They're just like, Hey, do you do senior pictures? Uh, okay, cool. Let's talk money. Like who, who does that? Who, who, who says like, okay, uh, do you do this? Okay. Let's immediately talk about money. Like that's, that's, I, I find that I have to have a nuanced dance with the clients to even get to the money part. Like we have to have a little bit of back and forth and rapport and all that. And then when I feel the time is right, that's when I start bringing up the money. You know, we talked about price anchoring and all that. I tried to kind of beat them to the punch and just get right to the dollar amount. Uh, but it should never be like, what's your price? Like right off the bat or, but then the other thing you hear is like, when you come back with a price, they never have a problem with it because they're going to overpay anyway. And so, you know, sometimes people, uh, they don't know what a photographer costs. As a matter of fact, a lot of people I deal with don't know what a photographer costs. So it's the whole carefree, like, okay, that's just what it costs. But I'm, and then, you know, then they end up overpaying and all that. And, and by the way, in the year 2023, please don't accept checks. Like I only write one check and it's to my son's boy scout troop because they're stuck in the 20th century. Okay. That's the only, even the guy who mows my fucking lawn doesn't take checks anymore. He does everything through Zell. So like, there's no reason to take checks because checks are one of the easiest things to commit fraud with. And if you run a business and you want to protect yourself, just don't take checks period. At all. And, you know, things like PayPal and Venmo and all, they now have better protections than them. Uh, the one that has the least amount of protection right now, Facebook has a payment system. I think it's called like a friends and family thing or whatever. And if somebody tries to pay you through that, I believe that's the one where you can get screwed the easiest and not get your money back. And so, you know, and this happens all the time. Like every now and then I'll list a item for sale on Facebook Marketplace. And it's always like, Hey, I see you listed this Fuji XS10 camera you're selling. I want to buy it for my nephew. Like who the fuck who the fuck goes on Facebook Marketplace to buy cameras for their nephews? I mean, it's always like I don't know if it's a cultural difference or what, but wh whatever country this person's contacting me from, I guess they buy shit for their nephews cuz it's totally not believable here in the states. Like I don't go on Facebook Marketplace and buy $2000 cameras for a nephew. Yeah, there's that classic one where they're like, "Yeah, I'm on a military base, so like, you know, can you send the, can you send it to this address? And you like, look at the address and you're just like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Now there's a, there's a, there's a variation of the scam as well. There's one where it's like, Oh, Hey, my family's coming into town on such and such date. We want to book you to shoot like pictures of our family. Uh, or maybe, maybe they're, it's actually more event based. We have this big event. We're going to have a caterer there and we're going to have, you know, a flower person there, whatever can I just overpay you and you just pay out the vendors? The thing is, is that the vendors are in, the vendors are fake. I'm going to say vendors with quotations around it. The vendors are in on the scam. And so you pay legit money out to these non-existent vendors and then they take your money and run away into the night. So that's the other variation of the overpay scam. Um, oh, well the photography was a thousand, but you know, the flowers are 300 and like the caterer was 1200. And so we're just, you know, because we're coming in from out of town, it's just really complex for us to pay all these people. How about you just pay them? Which like, why would they put the onus on you in a realistic situation? Like, fuck you. Like people book weddings all the time and they have to pay all the different vendors out. But you know, you might just be new into photography and you're so flattered that somebody is not only willing to pay you, but man, they're paying you a lot of money to do this. 
it's because it's a scam. Sorry. Hate to bring that up. Yeah. If, if money's not hitting your physical bank account, like that's a great rule of thumb. If, if someone says they're paying you, first of all, if you're doing a job that you need a deposit of some sort, whatever the percentage is, that's up to you, but you need a deposit to get them on the calendar and only and only when money is has hit your bank account and you can verify that there's an actual pixel dollar amount fucking change. Unless that has happened, nothing is real. It's all in thin air. Yep. Now we're going to shift to scam number two, the eBay scam. And how does this affect you photographers? So let's say you have an 85 millimeter F 1.8 that you spent $300 for. And let's say you worked really hard and now you've saved up money for an 85 1.2, a $3,000 lens and you're ready to do it. And you pull the trigger on it and you get your 85 1.2. You're like, great. Well, I don't need my 85 1.8 anymore. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sell that on eBay. Well, I'm going to make you hip to the eBay scam. So what happens is a buyer buys your 85 millimeter 1.8 lens. They also go and look for an 85 millimeter 1.8 lens for parts that they might get for $20 or whatever. They buy that parts lens and it comes in and it's all jacked up. Your lens arrives. They take your uh, beautiful, perfect lens out of the box. They take the broken lens, they put it back in the box, and then they contact you for a return and say your lens got damaged in shipping and then they send you a busted up lens back to you and you are now on the hook for a lens that is busted up that wasn't the one that you sent them in the first place so how do you combat that and how do you avoid that if you list anything on ebay in in your transaction there's a memo section always put your serial number in the memo section of the transaction. So that way, when they send you the busted up lens, you can go back to eBay and say, look, it says that the serial number is this. This is the serial number that I sent. Here's a picture of it. This is the serial number I got back. I'm being scammed. That gives you recourse. If you do not do that, you're fucked. Now, on a $300 lens, that may not be as big of a deal as, say, if you're selling a $3,000 lens. Let's say you're switching from Sony to Nikon or whatever, and you have a really expensive lens setup that you're selling. And, you know, you get screwed on the broken one for parts or whatever. You get that parts lens back. That's how you avoid that. You always make sure that you put and remark a memo with the serial number of what you're selling in the transaction. You do that, you're golden. I just want to make sure that you know how to avoid that scam. Yeah. I don't know about selling a $3,000 lens on eBay. I just wouldn't fucking, I just wouldn't fuck with that. I sold expensive stuff on eBay before, but it's, but it's easier to do it locally for sure. Face to face. I, yeah, I, I definitely sell something more expensive on Facebook marketplace. And even if they're a buyer from like Wisconsin and I ship it, like I'd just be like, okay, you want to buy this? We're going to take this off Facebook marketplace and we're going to take it to my PayPal. (laughs) And that's how we're going to do that. Exactly. And just remember kids, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Let's talk about scam number three, the published prize scam. So you'll see something online that looks like it's, uh, you know, uh, oh, you enter your photo into a contest and you win. And uh, 
when when you win, all of a sudden you have to pay forty dollars for a feature, for an interview, or whatever, and then a hundred dollars for the book, right? Uh, you know, it turns out you win second or third prize. You get an email saying that you won second or third prize and you're all excited. And like I said, you pay your $40 for your interview and a hundred dollars for the book. So you're out $140 for something that you entered, but, but you know, you want proof. You want to show everybody, look, I, I won this contest. So the book arrives and guess what? You won second or third prize. And you find out that the entire rest of the book and the entire rest of the entrance in the book were also second and third prize winners. So it was all a fucking scam. You just spent $140 to basically print your work as all that happened. Uh, that's a scam to look out for. And something we've touched up on this, which is a gray area, but I still find it that it can feel a little scammy is that um, a lot of these quote unquote magazines that exist. Uh, if you go into the cave our world of uh, printing in a magazine with the mentality of, I just want to see my work printed in something that resembles a magazine, then it's great. If you're going into it outside of the anomalies that Brandon got into something that actually made it onto a newsstand, in general, 90% of the stuff on KVR doesn't make it to a newsstand. So if you're thinking that you're actually published, you're not really published. You're just in a book that gets printed to order. The only people who buy that magazine are the photographers in there, the makeup artists, the models, and the hairstylists. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the thing as well is like, you kind of just have to do a little bit of due diligence. Like there's a lot of really good fashion magazines like Vogue, um, ID and L and stuff like that. And, um, L I think is actually on KVAR, but a lot of other like high fashion mags will not be because they don't need KVAR. So there's, there's one fashion mag that's called, um, there's a rebel mag and there's mob journal. And those are actually two magazines that are often bought in and like, put on shelves for different like stores around the world. But you're definitely not getting into purple magazine or America or Movier or whatever the f dude. And, and then as soon as no, like, well, they uh, send me so many fucking emails. Like I just, Oh yeah. So I've, I've been in these magazines before and I use the term magazine very loosely. Um, but you know, a lot of times they, they will have uh, several editions of the same magazine. It's all based on the amount of people who submit to it. So they might have like, uh, Malvi magazine. They might have like their main Malvi magazine and the people who get into the main magazine actually get in on merit. But then the other six variations of that month's magazine are all people who submitted. Um, they end up uh, paying to be on the cover. They end up paying for an interview. You know, Malvi has interviewed me for free before. I, I don't, I don't pay for that shit. I, I just like, I mean, I'll, you, and in the end, if you want a copy of the magazine, you have to pay for it. And the magazine costs $40. Now, that is not uh, abnormal for a fashion magazine. Uh, as a matter of fact, a copy of Purple Magazine is $250. Uh, but it's also like the most quintessential high fashion quarterly uh, publication in the world, uh, arguably. And it's like, you know, really fucking hard to get into Purple Magazine. Like you can get into Purple, you are you are a high fashion photographer and I've never tried to even get into it. I don't think I could get into it cause I don't really shoot in the style that they like. But point being, if you try to get into like the cave our world, it's not hard to get into the magazines. If you shoot decent photography uh, and there are levels to it. I have seen 
some pretty mediocre shit make it into these magazines because they're just like, well, we got 12 different photographers to submit. So, and, and they're not even thematic. Like they say they're them- thematic, but well, then you, like you see the different like editorials in there and they're all like way all over the place, all over the map. The aesthetics are way different. And so it's, there's not even continuity in the magazines. Yeah. And you don't want your work standing next to that. I remember like that's, that's when that world like opened up. That's when like the, the smoke and mirrors kind of like dissipated is when I made it into one of those magazines. And this was a couple of years ago and I was just like, Oh sick. Fuck. Yeah. And then I was looking at all the other work and I was like looking and like some of these weren't even fucking retouched. I'm like, I was just like, I was like, Holy shit. Like I don't want my work next to these fucking photographers. This looks like ass. Uh, exactly. And you know, but you can take, you can take comfort in the fact that nobody else saw it. <laughs> nobody else saw your work next to the mediocre work because the only people who bought it were the people who were in the magazine. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, if you, if you've never seen your work printed before in a magazine style, then I, you know, encourage you to be in those magazines once or twice. But I will say that the second I stopped worrying about being in those magazines, I actually started getting better offers for work. Uh, they don't, help you necessarily i've seen some people kind of use it i've seen actually seen modeling agencies go look our models get published and you go look at what they've been publishing and it's all those fake vanity magazines and it's like you actually use this as a promotional tool this is embarrassing it only means something in that level of the community it's like it's like the same thing as striving to be the top photographer in your fucking local city photographer Facebook group. It's like, it doesn't mean shit to anyone who's pioneering or making anything artistic or, or doing any real work. And I'm sorry to say that's just the bitter truth, you know, as save yourself that, that level of energy and all that, that exertion just to get into those magazines is absolutely fucking useless. Once again, if you're doing it to just see your work in print, it's actually worth doing a couple of times. You know, you, if you go, if, if I go to a lab and I buy uh, 10, eight, eight and a half by 11 prints of my work, it probably costs about 40 bucks. Uh, if you pay 40 bucks for one of these magazines, you get a 10 page spread. You get to see your work on 10 pages uh, of magazine quality. So, it, it, you know, it's cool to do a couple times just to see your work printed. But, uh, you know, if you, uh, get obsessed with it. I've had some models who are like, you, why haven't, why haven't we got anything published in a while? I was like, first of all, this is not published. And second of all, this does absolutely nothing for your career. And if you want to make the cover, I have to pay for it usually. So no thanks. And so, yeah, just something to avoid, but on the subject of magazines and scams, I want to talk to you about another scam. I've been approached by companies before that are like, Hey, if you pay us $800, I think it was right around that $800. We will interview you. We'll get you interviewed in these magazines that basically sound legit, but aren't. And so what I'm talking about here is so like, you know, like you go into, uh, you have like the New York times and you have the LA times and you have like the Dallas morning news, you know, actual publications, newspapers that you've heard of. Right. Well, what they do is they, they do a little bit of wordplay. So what they'll do is I don't, I don't know if there's like an LA daily examiner, but I don't think there is one, but what they do is they go and they buy the domain for LA daily examiner. Right. And then what they do is they, they sell you on all these services. Like, Hey, we'll do interviews. We'll get a human being to interview you. 
And then we will publish it on the LA Daily Examiner, the Los Angeles Daily Examiner. And then you can use that as a promotional tool for your business to say, look, I did an interview in the Los Angeles Daily Examiner. And it makes it sound like you're in a, you know, it's, it's just it's just fudged up in gray area enough to where people are like, oh, wow, that sounds legit. But then maybe they won't actually like go investigate as to what the Los Angeles Daily Examiner is. And then they'll find out that it's just kind of a, a bullshit site that features nothing but interviews of people who are entrepreneurs trying to make their way through the world and trying to sound more successful than they actually are. What they'll do is they'll do four or five different interviews. One will be like the Los Angeles Daily Examiner. The other one will be like the New York Times Herald. They just, they, they take words that uh, that other cities might have for their newspaper and they apply it to another major city that doesn't use those words. And so that's what they do is they, they, they'll put together four or five interviews. I actually know a photographer who did this and it's so embarrassing because like about a year ago and I'm not going to go too into detail because maybe he's listening, but this photographer a year ago was doing nothing. And now all of a sudden uh, when you go to his social media, he is perceived as like this expert in his field of photography now. Like he's doing all this badass stuff because all he puts on his, uh, his Facebook page is all of these interviews about how he's become like this entrepreneur in his industry. And he, he, he you know, I know that he paid to, to get these fake fucking interviews. And before the blue check mark on uh, Instagram cost $15, there were only two ways you could get it. One was you had to be somebody important. And the other way was you could go through these $800. That was the other thing that they promised is they could get you the blue check mark back when it was harder to obtain. And, and so you get the blue check mark and as part of your $800 bundle, because they know some people high up at Instagram that I'm assuming Instagram's taking some sort of a kick on the back, or these people are on the side, taking kickbacks on the back and moving it forward. It's the bottom line is, is that it's not legitimate. Um, you know, it's, not really going, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll fool people into believing that you're more established than you actually are. Uh, but it's absolutely, in my opinion, a scam, which also leads me into a subsection of this, uh, scam number four, which is, uh, uh, you know, you get the people who also do the interviews and their entire, like their, their entire market is what they do is they, they copy and paste the same interview questions for everybody. And then at the end, they're like, can you recommend three people that you, you, you could, you could, you could, you know, we could reach out to and do this interview for. So in Austin, like, so they, they, there's this thing called, um, what the hell is it called? Voyage, 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 Austin, voyage, Dallas, voyage, New York, voyage, Miami. They just basically bought the domains of voyage insert city name. And then they reach out to you and go, hey, you, you are an upcoming entrepreneur and you're recommended by so-and-so. Do you want to do an interview? So I did a, I did agree to do the Voyage Austin interview a couple of years ago because I didn't know what it was. And then like at the end, they're like, oh, can you recommend some people? And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm, I, I, I was like, whatever. I gave them a couple names. But the bottom line is, is I... You know, there, there was no negative, like I didn't lose any money or anything. I didn't have to pay for anything. Uh, it wasn't like a scam in that sense. Although what happened after that, about a year later, uh, Voyage Austin reached out to me about some 
something that they wanted me to do to, you know, try to help my career out and I'd have to pay a hundred dollars for it. So they actually did reach out. Um, the other one is a uh, canvas rebel. They're one of them. They have, there's a lot of these, these magazines that are all recommendation based. And it's like, I mean, come on, you've, you've, anybody here listening to this podcast, you've read interviews before uh, a good interview. What, what is a good interviewer? It's somebody who does the research on the person that they're interviewing they're not copy and pasting a bunch of questions. They actually go, Hey, based off of this particular work that you did, and then you go into some sort of really detailed question, and then you get a really awesome answer back because you did your research on the question. That's not what these magazines do. They're all the exact same questions. Tell me your story about how you got started as an entrepreneur. Tell me about a challenge that you faced that, that you overcame. It's all the same questions because I've actually like gone through and like I read the interviews of the people who recommended me and I read the interviews of the people that I recommended and it was cookie cutter, copy paste, same exact questions. And that's not a good interviewer. It's a bunch of bullshit. It's a marketing thing for them. You're helping them out. You're not helping yourself out. And so that's something uh, that I personally uh, think is a scam. But let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, some equipment that we think is snake oil or scams in our industry. I think Brandon has some hot opinions on that. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. I don't want to be that guy, but if your style, like if your photography is based on using filters and just like incorporating that into your work, like it is fucking terrible. I'm sorry. It's just uninteresting. Because You're talking about like kaleidoscope I'm filters and stuff. I'm talking about kaleidoscope, prism. I'm talking about the one where they have like like one glass is fogged or one glass is like going to refract in a different way or one, one half of the semicircle is just going to refract. It's like, it's like, it's not your fucking work. Like, like the lens, the whole look is paid for. There's not a single fucking thing you can do that makes your shot interesting. It's, it's like literally like I can go on Pinterest. I can look this up. And then like, okay, like, like, like I get it. Like you've got a kaleidoscope head of some guy smoking a cigarette and, and odds are the color scheme is either going to be teal and orange. It's either going to be blue and red or blue and orange, or it's going to be green and red. And it's going to be some, you know, like it's, it's been mapped out. It's been done. It's old. It's over. No one cares. It's not artistic. It sucks. I will push back on one. The actual physical prism that you can move in front of a lens and free, free, like you can move it wherever you want. You can turn the angle wherever you want. That to me is legit. You can do some cool shit with that. And you actually have control over the outcome because you're changing the angle. You're changing the way it reflects and you're changing the way the light hits it based off of its position. So I will say that the physical prism, I don't think is snake oil. Uh, I think that it can quickly become a gimmick if you don't like really yeah, sit well, back and learn how it, to use it correctly. Well, it depends on what you're doing, right? So if you're going to, and this is like a 10 year old thing, but if you get a prism and you put it up next to your lens and you decide to shoot someone's, someone's face wearing aviators standing next to a neon sign and you decide to do that, you can go fuck yourself five days of the week and then maybe twice on the weekend. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
Like it's, it's been done. And then the collab- can't do it more than once a day. Gosh, no. And then, and then like, that's the thing is the pro mist filters and all that sort of stuff. And like the pro mist filter doesn't even fucking matter because you can go on Photoshop. You can literally lower the dehaze, lower the texture, and then like increase the contrast and the structure. And you've got the pro mist filter there. And then like, I don't know. I don't believe in a look. Like if you're going to do a look, let it be a formula. Let it, let it be something that you've built and developed over time that speaks to you. But like, like when you buy a filter, like you're not buying it for your work, you're buying it for someone else's fucking like headshots or something like that. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's not artistic. And I, I think that it's, it's a commercial move. I think it's literally just like, an advertising marketing move for your work. That's it. I have too much of a squirrel brain to get into that. Like I would get like I, I, I anything that I perceive to be kind of gimmicky. Uh, I don't typically buy into because I get so bored with things so quickly. I would use it once and I'm like, all right, well that was fun. Yeah. Well it's like, and, and not to like discount the whole filter thing. Like if you're going to shoot T max on film and you want to darken the sky, so you get a red filter, that's completely different. That's, that's creating a look that you can then change in so many different ways and, and apply to your photos in so many different ways. I also think landscape photographers using ND filters, like 10 stop ND filters. That's, that's, that's legit. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's just achieving, that's enhancing your equipment to achieve something that is physically impossible. I have to use, I have to use ND filters on my fastest lenses in the middle of the day, because if you shoot a 85 millimeter lens or any lens for that matter, they can go to 1.2 at 1.2 at, at one eight thousandth of a second. It's still so bright at one eight thousandth of a second that you have to put an ND filter on it to get it dark enough. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think it's a scam, you know, cause people, I, you can get creative with these things they can give you the ability to create photos that are actually like very compelling and you can get creative to where the filter itself and the effect that's offered by the filter is only one small part of a, of a larger and greater composition that took some, some thought, but nine times out of 10 people are just using these filters and just shooting very obvious matter of fact photos. And it's like, you know, you, you may as well just go to Adobe stock and, and, you know, post it on Instagram or you use that as your work. Well, I find oftentimes the people who use these filters, they use the filters because they themselves are not good at composing the shot. They're not good at telling the story. And it's kind of a punt. They're like, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to throw a filter in front of it. And now it's good. And it's not. It's it's like I can see through the bullshit. It's just it's a mediocre shot with the filter on it. Now that's all it is. It was mediocre before it's still mediocre. Now, I think that you could if you get all the other parts right and the enhancements to take that photo to the next level is a filter. You could make a filter improve a photo, but I find a lot of times that the people who buy into those filters and buy into the hype behind those filters are people who are in a rut or whatever, or they're just not super creative to begin with. And rather than creating with their mind, they just hope that this is a bandaid that they put over their work. That's going to enhance it to the next level. But as they say, you can't polish a turd. If it's a turd, it's a fucking turd. Everyone's trying to distract from their shitty photography skills. It started with Brandon Wolfel's edits where it's the pink and teal. And it's just like you could take a photo of a crack in the road and splash a little water on it. And then, 
you just turn up the grit, you turn up the contrast, you turn up, what is it? The textures so that the fucking, the water and the highlights in the road are ultra like, like cocaine out. And then you just add pink and blue and people are just like, well, fuck killer photo. It's the same thing. And I know this, this might even be below me as a photographer and to talk about this kind of stuff. Cause it's such a social media thing. Like most people don't even take like filtered photo photography real. It doesn't get published, you know, no, no fashion agency, no editorial is going to publish work like this. It solely exists for social media and kind of just as a content creators thing, but it still irks me. Like, I don't think it's real. I think it's just, it's like fast fashion. You know, my hot take is that it'll trigger some people. I feel the same way about everything Andy Warhol has ever done. I was I was thinking about that the other day. It's just like there's no ingenuity. He just he just shows things in a different light, you know? It's like these it's like this day and age, we have a lot of artists who are just like you know, I'm inspired by Keith Haring. And then you look at their work and it's like, oh, it's literally just Keith Haring. Like that's it. They haven't built upon it. They're just like my squiggles just, they, you know, they're not right angles. They're 75 degree angles when I squiggle. And that's, that's what makes me unique. All right. I'm going to shift gears to a piece of gear. That was, that was good. That was a good pun. Um, you know, cause I've been, I've been having more of the, we, we, we kind of switch roles today. I've been having the more philosophical conversation and you've been having more of the gear conversation. <laughs> so I'm feeling a little left out. So I'm going to talk about a piece of gear, uh, that was so much hype and so much let down when I tried it out. And I'm sorry if they're listening, uh, Rotolite, Rotolite. If you're not familiar with Rotolite, they're a company out of the UK that, uh, has very, very aggressive marketing. So like, you know, their marketing is like, oh, I clicked on a link to Rotolite. Well, RIP to your Facebook feed and for the next like three months because all you're going to see is Rotolite, 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 Rotolite. And that's all I saw. Um, I actually got a chance to try their lights out. Uh, what The way they market their lights is you don't need to take strobes on set. But when you look at all of their uh their work for the most part, it's all done in the dark or at dusk, you know, at night, etc. And, uh, you know, they even got some really well-respected photographers, uh, ones who I have a tremendous amount of respect to endorse their products. So one of them being Greg Gorman, which if you've seen a poster in Hollywood, he shot it. He's an incredible photographer. Uh, absolutely nothing but the utmost respect for Greg Gorman. And I watched a video of Greg Gorman where he was endorsing it and all that. And it got me excited about it. And so I went ahead and I tried it out and a uh, complete fucking let down. Uh, so what their products do is they are continuous lights that basically flash. So, you know, we go out and we buy video lights and they're continuous or we go buy a strobe and they're not continuous. They might have a kind of a, you know, lame uh, modeling lamp, but then they, you know, they get really bright and it's just for a very brief period of time. And so the way that the roto light works is that it's a pretty good continuous light, uh, pretty bright. And then it just basically increases a stop of light temporarily while it flashes. And so, you know, they use all these statistics like, Oh, you can get like 60,000, like you can get like 60,000 strobes out of, uh, out of one battery or whatever, uh, one V mount battery on their, uh, I think it's called the AOS two or whatever. And, uh, I tried out their AOS and their neolizers. These are the big ones and their small ones. And it is, like their brightest light that they make is still like 10 times darker than one speed light. 
I'm not talking about a strobe. I'm talking about a speed light. And so uh, is the product cool? Kind of. Does the product really meet my expectations? Absolutely not. And then the, the Achilles heel of the product is that it's like the size of a softball. But the problem is, is if you're listening to this and you use off-camera flash, you use strobes, you already know like, hey, every modifier that you buy, whether it's a softbox, a per parabolic reflector, a beauty dish, they all have a small opening on the back because in order for you to take advantage of the physics of a, uh, a modifier, you have to have the light as far back as possible so it can spread, diffuse, do what it needs to do. Well, these lights are much too large to put in the back of a modifier. So they have some sort of a, a contraption that you get that moves the light about eight to 10 inches in front. And so like the light is like in the middle of a modifier. It's like, well, you're basically truncating it and you're not taking advantage of like the very beginnings of a modifier as it evenly spreads light. And so that in and of itself, you lose several stops of light. You put diffusion on it, you, you lose several stops, you lose a couple more stops of light. And so when you put modifiers on these lights, they're just, they're not, they're not bright. Like, uh, you know, I, I shot in a studio with it and I was having to shoot at like F 2.8 or F four. Whereas when I use a strobe, I can shoot at F 11 because it's so bright that it gets the job done. And, and, you know, I'm not talking shit about Rotolite. I'm just saying that like when you see their marketing hype versus actually trying out their product, and then you see that one of these lights costs like $1,600 and that you have to buy special modifiers and all that for it, they're pretty big disappointment. So It's funny that you, you mentioned the modifiers is something that I actually didn't know until recently by virtue of Kevin is... I was looking for more directional light and I've been using soft boxes for quite a while now, just regular octagon soft boxes, 28, uh, 28 inches all the way up to 60 inches in diameter. So, you know, uh, different throws and whatnot, different uh, gradual fall off on the edges. And I found that I wanted something more directional, even more, more directional than a grid. And so I thought to myself like, huh, um, well, I didn't think to myself, I had a conversation with a guy on Instagram about his work and I was just like, how do you focus the light so well? And he goes, oh, I use a parabolic softbox. And so I naturally, I bring it up with Kevin because we communicate a lot uh, about technical stuff on Instagram. And I was just like, Kevin, yeah, no, I'm thinking about getting a parabolic softbox so that I can get more like uh, directional light and then throw a grid on there to get it even more so and really, you know, uh, control the light in that way. And Kevin had just received a parabolic reflector from Cheetah. And now this is actual directional light. This is physical uh, directional light based on the mathematics of a parabola and uh, the, the re refractivity of a parabola with uh, omnidirectional light hitting it at a certain area. And so... Kevin gets back to me when I talk about my parabolic softbox, not reflector. That's the key word here. Kevin goes, yeah, no, none of it doesn't even matter if it's a parabolic softbox or not. It's just a softbox because, and I didn't get that at first. And a lot of photographers, a ton of photographers, including myself, but uh, as four months ago, don't know abs, like they don't know shit about a parabolic reflector. And so there is no such difference between a parabolic softbox and an octagon. There's literally none because as long as you are having a diffusion sheet, a diffusion sheet over it, 
you're getting non-directional light. It just changes the fall off on the edges pretty much. Exactly. I mean, uh, the only thing a parabolic softbox might be able to give you over an octagon is if you take the rod and you move it to the back, uh, the, it might be a little brighter, but the, the, the way it spreads and everything, it's no different. It's the same at that point in time, the diffusion basically defeats everything that the parabol, the parabola, the parabola is supposed to do, you, you know, and that's why it's interesting. Well, um, well you give it too much credit. Most people, the people I know using the parabolic softbox, they don't mount, they don't mount it to a rod. They bones mount the parabola straight to the light. And like, they assume that the shape alone will make a difference. Yeah. At that point in time, you're better off just buying something way more shallow, uh, because the depth has absolutely no impact on your final results. So hundred percent. You are listening to the F11 photography podcast. We're going to shift gears to the very last topic I want to talk about, and it's going to take some time. I'm probably going to go off on a very long tangent. You're not going to hear Brandon for a few minutes because I need to talk about some things. So I want to talk about uh, what I consider to be a huge scam snake oil in the photography industry. And I'm going to go off on a tangent that's going to have kind of nothing to do with photography, but I'm going to tie it in. So let's Let's, let's uh, calibrate things. So when I was growing up, when I was in high school and early college, the internet was very decentralized. There was not a, a place for us to all gather to break bread. Websites were kind of just scattered all over the internet. You kind of had to use search engine optimization. Back then it was Yahoo. Google didn't exist. And so the internet was uh, really learning what it wanted to be and how it was going to, uh, to work. It was going through growing pains. Okay. Um, over time, you know, mid two thousands, uh, you end up getting, uh, MySpace, and then you end up getting Facebook and, uh, uh for positive and negative reasons, uh, that ended up centralizing the internet. Everything got smaller. We now have a place to gather, to break bread. Okay. And, uh, you know, we as human beings, I'm going to make a blanket statement about how we are naturally, um, which is we are like water. We want the path of least resistance. We want a comfortable routine that we can go to, uh, people, they wake up every day now and they're like, okay, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to check my Facebook. I'm going to check my Twitter. I'm going to check my Instagram or whatever. And that's, that's now where everybody is at. We've all been corralled into the same place on the internet. Uh, you know, people, uh, tend to go to Facebook for family stuff or whatever. People tend to use, um, a Twitter as kind of a news ticker. Now, you know, when I was growing up, the news would be read to you every day. Everything that had happened past tense, uh, Dan rather Peter Jennings, uh, I'm a little too young for Walter Cronkite. They would say, here's the news of the day. And even when the internet was decentralized, if I ended up going to the respective places like whether, whether it was MSNBC or CNN or even Fox News's websites. Back then, it was a lot less sensationalized. There was still sensationalism back then, but uh, the internet version of these, these websites were still very much, here's what happens today, not here's the news that we're trying to create. Well, in the internet world, now that we have uh, a very centralized place that we go to, we go to 
Amazon now to get our, our, our material possessions because it's super easy and they can get it to you sometimes within the same day. And, uh, we, you know, like I said, we go to Twitter for the ticker. We go to Instagram to see what everybody's uh, fabricated versions of their lives are. Or I put my, uh, my photography up there sometimes. And so you see all that. Um, and people use it for good, but a lot of people use it for bad. And there's bad actors on there. And, you know, you see examples of that, like, uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. The 2016 election on Facebook, there was so much disinformation out there and people that would take advantage of your aunt who would share the stupidest shit and you just go why are you sharing this this is, this is obviously like bullshit and like no it's on facebook i saw it and they have a share button because facebook was of course more interested in profits than truth and so where am i going with all this i'll tell you where i'm going with this we were just learning our lessons from 2016. We're kind of figuring out how to navigate in a post 2016 election social media world. And then we were hit with the pandemic, which then created a new dimension. Uh, so we were all corralled into the same place. But, you know, in Facebook, you know, whatever, you post a picture of your time at Disney World and your aunt leaves a comment, they like it and they comment, you got to go into your notifications and then you have a conversation with them and like, oh, thank you for liking my picture or whatever. Well, when we were all on lockdown, we sought human interaction because we couldn't leave our houses. We had cabin fever. We had all that stuff going on. And Speak so for yourself, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was a free bird, baby. Well, we were on lockdown. A lot of us saw human interaction and there was a void and you saw it uh, like people like Joe Rogan, who obviously already have good ratings. His podcast numbers went through the roof because people had nothing to do, but uh, do podcasts. YouTube, YouTube interaction went through the roof because people had nothing to do, but sit around and watch YouTube videos all day. But for a lot of us, that wasn't enough. And so in came things like green room and clubhouse and now, in real time, you could have conversations with other human beings and share information. And it was a really cool thing that was, I mean, it was just like a little year and a half, two-year window that if you were able to get a front row seat to it, uh, there were some really cool things to come out of it. And there were some really not cool things to come out of it. So, like, yeah, I would find myself in rooms with like Wesley Snipes, you know, like actors and stuff. Cause they had a room for the new coming to America movie came out a few years back. It came out during lockdown. It was during 2020. Like I think it was the summer of 2020. And like you'd be in a room with Wesley Snipes. You can ask Wesley Snipes a question and you would have an audio conversation with him. It was, it was a, it was a pretty cool thing. We were being connected at this level, but <clears throat> like I talked about earlier, scams, uh, people going out there and, uh, you know, trying to take advantage of people, grifters, what really exploded during the pandemic, uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs, right? Oh, clubhouse was a ground zero for NFT bullshit. And so we need to talk about real quick what an NFT is. Okay. I know that a lot of you uh, know what an NFT is, but a lot of you listening don't know what an NFT is. It's a non-fungible token, okay? And while they're so 2021 and 2022, I, I still want to have a, a, a conversation with it. So what is a fungible token? Uh, cryptocurrency. A Bitcoin is a fungible token because if I 
give somebody a Bitcoin and they give me their Bitcoin back, they're the equal thing. They're an equal thing. So they're fungible. However, if it's non-fungible, it's a one-of-a-kind thing that you can purchase. And so that's what a non-fungible token is. And so what became big during lockdown were NFTs. And people were trying to sell their digital pictures as NFTs. And I was just kind of sitting back and, you know, listening to what's going on. And, and you know, I've just been seeing all these people transform. Oh, I'm, a, I'm an NFT artist now and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, this seems like a little bit of bullshit because like I, I dipped my toes into cryptocurrency because I wanted to just see how it worked. I looked at it. Uh, the same way that I looked at Las Vegas. If I go to a casino, it's like, I have $300. When the $300 is gone, I'm going to leave. Well, what I saw happen with the cryptocurrency is really what, what there's, there's what people in their early twenties who invested in a cryptocurrency thought happened. And then there's what actually happened. And what actually happened is that billionaires in wall street, they don't want people fucking with their money. So all the vigilantes and the people who wanted to take advantage as a billion advantage of billionaires, they all got thrown out. You, you can't play on wall street. If you're, if you're going to try to scam people, you can't play on wall street. But what if we go to an decentralized, unregulated place where there's a bunch of really young people who don't know shit about investing. Oh, cryptocurrency. That's where all these people went and they took advantage of these people and it bled over into the NFT world because it uses blockchain. And if you're not familiar with what blockchain is, blockchain is just a very simple, uh, like let's say you have digital files that you keep on a cloud. You use iCloud, right? Okay. Apple has your digital files. Well, a blockchain, it's actually spread out over many different places is decentralized. And then they have a checks and balances to verify that this digital file belongs to you. There's a ledger, a transaction ledger, right? That's what, that's how uh, blockchain works. And that's the technology that NFTs use. And I'm going to get into why there's a scam and NFTs are bullshit and all that. I just want I need to establish a, a backstory so people can hear what I'm, wh where this is coming from and why this is uh, bullshit. So, uh, if I go into a museum and I see a Monet painting, I have a tangible Monet painting that I think, okay, that's, that's a, that's a tangible piece of art. I think it has value. Well, art is only what, uh, you know, I guess, uh, something is worth what somebody will pay. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, if I hype something up, I can, uh, get you to believe it's worth more than it actually is. That's where the scam came in with the NFTs is that everyone's like, oh, no, no, no. All we're going to talk about is how much your digital piece is going to be worth. They're using the exact same language they were using with Bitcoin and Ethereum and all that. They didn't talk about how viable of a currency it could be. They didn't talk about how practical it could be because they knew that was bullshit. That All they talked about was how much it could be worth. When you go and you walk around with a dollar in your pocket, all you think about is this dollar's worth a dollar. That's what it's worth. It's worth a dollar. You don't think about what a dollar's worth. It's just, it's a dollar. All people talked about cryptocurrency is how, how much money it was going to make you. It's like, that doesn't sound like a currency. That kind of depends. In Europe, Bitcoin and Ethereum were much more of a viable currency. And is also it's also something you could speculate on that was recognized as something you could speculate on around the world. It wasn't like a niche thing. You hit the nail on the head. Speculative. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, but the dollar is speculative as well. We, it's a fiat currency. 
but on a much smaller, smaller, smaller scale, you have NFTs. So it's not, it's not necessarily a scam so much as if you're not keeping up with the psychology and how people view the different lines of NFTs, then, you know, you're going to lose value on it. It's like, it's like trading. It's, you know, I used to work for a company. It was a trading education company called Simpler Trading. And we taught education on how to trade. And there are trends. There are like actual trends you can look at, but it's a very disciplined thing. And most people buy on hopium and they don't do their due diligence. And so it's, it's the same thing. It's all speculation, but there's, there's a methodology for coming out on top. So here's my pushback on that because we we're trying to say that the dollar, the, the U S dollar and NFT or I'm sorry, Bitcoin are both speculative, but there's another, there's, there's different levels to this. I can go to the most backwoods, uh, trailer park in Appalachia. Okay. And I can go find someone who doesn't know shit about shit has four teeth and I give them $5 and I say, go to Taco Bell and buy tacos. That very uneducated person knows how to go to Taco Bell and buy tacos with that $5 that I give him. That's how practical the U.S. dollar is. If I go to that guy and go, hey, you should take that $5 and then you should go download Coinbase and then you should get this digital wallet. And then in that digital wallet, you're going to convert that $5 to 0.00135 Bitcoins. And then you're going to try to take that Bitcoin and you're going to have to like go to a Bitcoin uh, uh, ATM somewhere in your city. Hopefully they have them in Appalachia. Spoiler alert, they don't. And you're going to go buy Taco Bell with Bitcoin. When you try to explain to them how blockchain works and how digital wallets work, all he's going to go is, do you have $5? I'm fucking hungry. And that's, that's the extent of it to the point of it being a practical currency that in and of itself was a fucking lie and it will never work because the practical down to earth user cannot understand it to use it as a practical currency. The same thing kind of goes when you try to explain NFTs to them. If they see a Monet painting on the wall, they'll be like, that's a Monet painting. It has value to me because I can touch it and I can see it. Then you just go, Hey, here's a, here's a, a video of fucking uh, Jake Paul farting and you can sell it for $10,000. If you know how to do it right. They're gonna be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Cause you can mint, right, you can right. mint a video of Jake but, Paul farting, but the value isn't in how it works because we just agreed it's speculation. It doesn't matter what the hell blockchain is. You don't need to know what blockchain is to make money off of Bitcoin, or you don't need to know the decentralization of data and, and copyright to know and make money from NFTs. It's, it's the same thing is it's, it's so speculative that people crap sold one of his NFTs for 1.3 million, right? So the value is not in the blockchain or the aspect of what it is. The value is in, is in the artist. It's in the community. It's in the context of the situation. Well, it's just my opinion, but whoever sp- spent one something million dollars on that made a shitty investment and shitty investments are made every day. No, but it's like you'd spend that much on a Banksy painting. You know, the name is what gives the value. Beeple is one of the top 3D artists in the world, one of the top digital artists in the world. So he obviously gave it the value. The NFT itself wasn't the value. Well, so, so you have a point, but like my, okay, so Tyler Shields sells his shit on Sotheby's. Tyler Shields sold some of his NFTs for $35,000. You're talking about already like 
artists who are already making money before NFTs were even a thing. No, but I'm saying you cannot separate its intrinsic value from its extrinsic value. So just like how people crap is hyped and well known, there's that intrinsic value in his NFTs. If some guy convinces a large amount of people that a monkey NFT is worth a lot of money, then it is because they all agree upon it. That's the agreement. And so it suddenly has speculative market value. That's what I'm saying. It's all a giant self. um, It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's kind of what trading is. When you get enough people to believe a stock's going to go up, they buy, it goes up. That's what happened with GameStop. And my point is, is the scam was all the hype people getting ignorant people to believe that stuff was worth what it was worth in the first place. That's where I'm coming from because there are ones like, well, Tyler Shields sold his, his uh, NFT for $35,000. It's like, right. Well, Tyler Shields was already selling his prints for $35,000. He already had an established market before NFTs I could argue because you just said that you think Andy Warhol is a scam. And I think what happened with Andy Warhol was so many people got together in in the warehouse and that they loved his movement as an artist and what he was able to do, bringing other artists of other disciplines together, that he became famous for making really just drab, boring as fuck commercial art. It's a giant scam. He got enough people psychologically involved to believe there was value that suddenly there was value. So my take on Andy Warhol is I don't like his work, but I recognize that other people see value in his work, but I don't necessarily think that they were scammed into it. I think that their tastes vary from mine. I think that in the world of well, how NFTs, can, well, how can you differentiate that? Their taste being different from, I can differentiate the fact that, uh, like art, tangible art that you buy when you look at graphs of it, it's just been like this very consistent, consistent thing that's happened for years. Whereas when you look at NFTs, there were this hot thing and now they're dropping back down. Are they back to where they were at the beginning? No, but they've dropped down quite a bit. People are definitely losing interest in it. People are not losing interest in holding tangible things. That's my point. Yeah. But the psychological, the psychology of it's the same is if people believe there's value in something, then the value goes up. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. NFTs are just it's just something. It was a fad. And the that, fact that that's it, exactly what I'm it's, saying. It's it was a, a fad. It was a fad. It doesn't mean it's a scam necessarily, but it was a fad. And if you don't see the fad for what it is, then, you know, like, look, you could be a reasonable person, make plenty of money from NFTs and then bounce because you see that it's not popular. Anymore. Here's, here's, here's where I get into the scam part of the NFT, which is people who are struggling and young who are trying to get the fast track to being big or whatever, or making it or whatever their version of success is, they're seeing people who are already successful before NFTs were a thing, be successful with NFTs and then go, I can do that too. It's a quick buck. What I think the scam is, is that they were promised that their NFTs are probably going to sell for a lot higher than they actually will. And that the, the actual percentage of people who do succeed with it is so small. They were, they were kind of oversold on a lie and that they're going to see, you know, cause you have to spend money to mint an NFT. It's not just like, you don't just show yeah. up one day. I mean, you have to, there's, there's, there's startup costs involved. And I think a lot of these people are going to see that their return on investment, their quick buck was never made. And that is why I think that it's non-fungible bullshit. Wait till these people figure out about options trading. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That does it for our episode today. It is non-fungible bullshit, but 
We thank each and every one of you for listening today. Uh, you can check us out at f11pod.com. Our handle on Twitter and uh, Instagram and all that is f11pod. You can go back and listen to our older episodes. We would greatly appreciate that. Uh, definitely check out our sponsor, Dehancer. Uh, use Gory10 for 10% off your copy of Dehancer today. And remember, kids, until next time, chase light, not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.